Hey, welcome to night school. It's been a heck of a year. It's been a crazy year, man. <laughs> All 10 days of it. Not that anything that eventful has happened in my life, but it already feels like a long year. People are very quiet. Everybody seems to be on the same page as I am, which is, you know, living like a depressed person, even if you're not feeling depressed. But yeah, that's the, I mean, talking to family members, talking to just about every person I know, everybody's very mute. Bunch of mutant mutes. Um, what do I got here? See, the thing is, I haven't had much to say. I think I've said it all. Um, I haven't been getting much sleep. That's my problem. I pulled an all-nighter a few nights ago, which... It's weird. I've done that like three times. I've, I've pulled like three uh, official all-nighters in the last... Probably since September, maybe August. I've stayed up all night, three different nights. And I hadn't done that since I was probably a kid. Like, yeah, a few like years ago, I would party all night. But I would always go to sleep at some point. You know, even if I was partying until the morning, I would always go to sleep. But I don't. it must have been since I was a teenager that I pulled an actual all-nighter. And I forget how that feels, because they always talk about how, you know, a lack of sleep makes you stupid, how you actually function like a dumb person, and it's so true, so true. I was trying to read something, I was I was actually doing some writing, and I was trying to read what I wrote, and I wasn't even able to comprehend it. It was actually, I find that writing is actually really easy in that state. And as long as you watch for typos, the writing itself doesn't suffer. Writing itself doesn't suffer. It doesn't, though. The actual writing came pretty naturally and good, but reading it, trying to read it back in that state, you know, it was just beyond me. And I was able to function really well. Like, I, I spent all day functioning, and then by the, towards the late afternoon, I was around, I was out in public, and I was like, I look like I'm on drugs. People are looking at me weird. You know, cars were driving by, and I had to go and be around people. And I, I was like, the way I'm moving, my aura is off. Because people, they recognize, you know, whether it's an aura or something else, there is something intangible about a person when they're in a weird state of mind that you notice. And when you haven't slept all night, and you start to crash, it's like your body moves weird. I didn't even feel tired, but I could just tell that I was moving weird and looking weird. And, uh, you know, there's something liberating about that, though. Because, I mean, I've, I've had plenty of nights where I get in bed and I try to sleep for a few hours and I can't sleep, so I get up. But that's different. Like, when you never actually lay down and you just stay up all night, there's something liberating about that moment where, like, the other night I was sitting on the couch doing stuff on the computer. I mean, it wasn't night. It was morning. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to try to get in bed. I'm just going to hope that I stay up long enough to where I go to sleep in the early evening. And there was something so liberating about the moment that I decided that I was not going to try to sleep. I was like, I'm going to make coffee. I'm going to drink a bunch of coffee and I'm just going to stay up. And it felt incredibly liberating. But it's a weird feeling because it's like, you know, this other shoe is going to drop. You have this initial burst. You drink some caffeine you feel like you're doing something. You feel like you're making some kind of statement. Oh, I'm staying up all night. But then you, you all day you know that you're going to feel it. 
you know that you're going to screw yourself up. So it's a funny thing. You know, I didn't do a January... You didn't do a January 666 episode. I got nothing to say about that. I thought about it. And I mean, they did exactly what they shouldn't have done. They should not have done what they did. And by that, I mean the people who, who turned it into this event this year, giving speeches... That's exactly what they shouldn't have done. And I feel that anybody who participated in that, anybody who participated in this event reflecting on January 666 is not a good person and actually does not have our country in their heart. I can't think of anything more divisive. You know, regardless of what you think about the actual event last year, just the way they handled that this year, bad, bad for everybody. And I mean that, you know, I think it's bad for everybody that they turned it into this hyperbolic fake event this year. And if they're smart, they'll never do that again. But I have nothing personally to say about it. Just that the best thing they could do is just move past it. I mean, we know they're capable of that. We see where all of these people have moved on from summer 2020. Acting like it wasn't a multi-month long nightmare. They've just moved on from that. So I think that it's well within their capacity to move on from January 666th, no matter who you are or what your take is on it. I bought a new vape tonight because, uh, you know, it's just hard. I've been trying to kind of get off it. I ended up, I, my friend dropped off like 15 bucks and, uh, I had a bunch of quarters that I forgot I had. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to use this 15 bucks and some quarters to buy a vape. I should have to do it that way. I should have to be scrounging up change to buy a vape. But it feels good to have it. feels good to have. Just moving on to the, the next topic. My friend Nick sent me a short story, a very short story. It was like a page. It was like a, a page and a, and, a, and a quarter. And that's perfect. Because sometimes, you know, friends will send me something they wrote and it's very long. I mean, I send friends very long things sometimes and I know it just takes time to read it. But when a friend just sends you like a page and a half of writing, it's the perfect amount. And uh, it was a story. It was from when we were kids, actually. It was just about a friend's birthday party when we were little boys going to a, a Mariners baseball game in Seattle and we all took the bus, like a bunch of parents and a bunch of boys went for our friend's birthday and we were waiting at the bus stop and we were all doing stuff. You know, it was, it was an event, you know, it was a, uh, you know, like, like 10 little boys, probably like 10 little boys getting on a city bus to go to a baseball game. That's, you know, that's exciting. It's like going to the zoo but we were waiting at the bus stop and, you know, we were all just goofing off, running around. And then I remember I was off to the side kind of talking to somebody or doing something. And then I noticed everybody got really quiet and the attention was suddenly focused on something. And so I went over to see what it was all about. And I, I just 
walked up mid-sentence, and this man had approached the group of us. This guy, he was probably in his 40s and had a backpack on, and he approached us, and I walked over like mid-sentence because he was already telling a story to some, some of my friends, and I just walk up, and he's like, he's gesturing very animatedly. He's using very animated hand gestures, and he's like in big puffy. Sh-. He goes, "Imagine big puffy shoes. You got a big mask, a big long nose." And it became apparent after a, a little more description that he was describing a Chuck E. Cheese costume. He was telling us how he used to work for Chuck E. Cheese and have to, he would have to wear the big mouse, the Chuck E. Cheese co- uh, costume. And he was describing it to us in detail and what it felt like to be in there. What it felt like to be in the mask, what it felt like to be in the suit. And you have these big, as he said, big puffy shoes. And he, kind of like the, the same way like when a man is using his hands to describe a woman with curves. It was kind of like that, except he's doing that to show us like how the Chuck E. Cheese costume was shaped. And he went on about it for a minute and he he was talking about like, you know, how difficult it was. And he seemed happy, but out of his mind. And, you know, it's not like he was trying to do anything. You know, there were a bunch of parents there and they were just kind of watching this guy. And we were just like, who? Like, I remember the walking up and thinking, is this okay? (laughs) I was like, is this okay that this guy's talking to us and doing this? Obviously, it stayed with us, you know, the fact that my friend Nick wrote a short story, you know, where he mentions the guy, but it, it was just fun to read that. Cause I'm like, yeah, that was weird. This guy, he had played Chuck E. Cheese. He, he had a job where he had to be in this giant mouse costume and interact with kids. And he saw a bunch of kids at a bus stop and thought, you know what? I'm going to tell those kids the Chuck E. Cheese story. And in my friend's short story, he was saying how he'd never even been to a Chuck E. Cheese. And I realized I don't think I have either. I don't remember ever going to a Chuck E. Cheese, even though it's this fixture, even though it's where a lot of kids have birthday parties, a lot of people go to have fun, they have the arcade, they have pizza. I don't think I ever went to one as a kid. They had them. There were Chuck E. Cheeses in my area, I believe, and I realized, though, that I don't think I ever actually did that. Something I did see today, because I've been totally tuned out from current events for the last week, which is good. I burned myself out on it. You know, every episode until recently, I was just it's just culture war stuff, current events, it feels like. I thought I wasn't going to be able to stop. I thought I was just fully infected. And when I feel that way, I've decided just to go, just to walk straight into it, to go with the wind. If that's what I'm focused on, that's what I'm focused on. Because that stuff, it's inescapable. I mean, a few days ago, I talked to my dad for his birthday. I called him. Hadn't talked to him since, I think, March on the phone. And, you know, he doesn't even have the internet. My dad's never had the internet. He watches TV and everything, but he's not an internet user. And with some of that culture war stuff, you know, over the years, people used to always say, oh, this is just something that exists online. Oh, all this stuff, all, all this, uh, this, this social stuff, it just, it's just something people talk about online. And I always rejected that, even though it was something that you saw online more often than not. We can see now that wasn't true, like where this is a part of everything now. Some of these social issues are just 
they're, they're a part of everything. And when I was talking to my dad, I was like, I'm not going to bring anything like that up. Because we can easily, like if I talk to him, we can easily go off for hours about it. But it was his birthday, so I was like, I don't want to piss him off on his birthday and bring up stuff that we hate. Even though we're both the kind of, (laughs) even though my dad and I, we're both the kind of people that I think prefer to talk about things we hate. Like when we like things, we don't talk about them. But if it's something that bothers us, we can easily go off. But I was like, I'm not going to bring up politics. I'm not going to bring up social issues. And then within like five minutes, he was like, and then what about this? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And so we ended up just ranting and raving until his phone died. Uh, But it feels good the last few days, the last week or so, I really haven't been paying attention to anything. I did see a glimpse of what they were doing on January 666th. And I've heard a couple things here or there, but I'm pretty out of touch, focused on other things, and just too tired. Just too tired and bored by it. But today I did. I saw something where it was a controversy because a guy, I think he's a politician, he made some kind of statement where he said that you know teachers should be impartial when they talk about Nazi Germany. Like they should teach World War II and the story of Nazi Germany from a place of neutrality. And of course, you can't say that, you know, in our climate, in, in any climate, but in our climate today, especially if you're a Republican like this guy, you can't make a statement like that without people taking it in the worst possible way. And I didn't see the full context. I'm not sure what how he framed it. I mean, I, I highly doubt the guy was making the argument that like, hey, we should we should give Nazi Germany a chance. But that's how people took it. From what I saw, the reaction to it was that people interpreted it as, oh, look, Republicans are just admitting the Nazis. Was, the Republicans, he's just he's just admitting that he's a Nazi now. Which I doubt was his point. Because it reminds me of the point that I always make on here. Where if you're discussing something severe, why do you need to moralize? Why do you need to tell people it's bad? Like when I launched my Mafia Substack, I made a point on there where I said, you know, I'm not going to do any moralizing here and I'm going to talk about the phenomenon of Cosa Nostra objectively. Because if I'm talking about a murder or a crime, why do you need me to tell you it's bad? Why do you need me to tell you a Mafia murder is a bad thing? I'm simply going to mention it I'm simply going to describe it, but you don't need me to say, oh, these scumbags, oh my God, these, you, can, you be, can you believe what these scumbags did? You know, it's hard not to do a little bit of that, but if I'm talking about a murder, do I need to tell you that that's a bad thing? Do I need to tell you what my stance is on that? I personally don't think I do, need to do that. I think that most people are well-socialized enough that when they read just an objective description of a murder, they can say, probably not a good thing. That's probably not a good thing. You know, I, I assume most people can do that. And the funny part about that is the sort of person who's going to read about that and be like, murder is cool. Oh, murder is okay. Murder is okay. You know, the sort of person who's going to do that They don't care. Like, if you do moralize and tell them it's bad, they're not going to care about that. They're not going to be convinced by that. And so this thing about Nazi Germany, I mean, 
you know, I'd have to see what the full context was, but I, I basically agree with it, which is that you should be able to describe the facts of World War II without having to tell people what's good and what's bad. If you're talking about mass executions, if you're talking about genocide, I don't know that you need to add your own spin to that. And I think when you do add your own spin, or you try too hard to convince somebody it's bad, especially when they know that, you actually achieve the opposite. And then the people who are in a place where if you don't tell them it's bad, they're not going to know. Oh, if you don't tell them that Nazis are bad, they're just not going to know. Because I can tell you that all neo-Nazis today have been told that it's bad. It's been hammered home. But they still decided to become neo-Nazis. And the sort of person who's going to sort of defy authority, defy social norms, and decide that Nazi Germany was actually in the right. Well, they're not going to have their... Their mind isn't going to be changed based on whether their teacher tells them it's bad. And there's a good chance that they don't like their teacher anyway or don't take their teacher seriously. And it sort of plays into what I've said about journalism today where it's the editorialization of everything. Where even journalism that isn't explicitly editorial in nature has this tendency to kind of work in, did you know this is bad? I notice it more and more. I mean, it's obviously common on corporate news networks, late night, not late night TV, but uh, 24-hour news. They do a lot of editorializing. Very rarely do they just present information anymore, if they ever did that. But it's something you even find in newspaper articles, where even if something is just trying to describe an event, you can't help but notice that they manage to work in some sort of opinion. They give it some kind of spin, even if it's right. Because that's the thing, even if they're right, you know, even if the spin that a, a journalist gives to an event is something I agree with, I don't think they should spin it. Just tell us exactly what it is. And people should be well socialized enough to know whether it's good or bad. And, you know, it's just the state of our world, though, is one where we're always doing that. Like, we operate from this place where if we don't tell you how to feel about it, you're going to come up with the worst possible conclusion. I don't think that's true. If you teach kids about World War II and you do it accurately, I don't think they're just going to default to sympathizing with the Nazis. And even though we were taught, like thinking back, like we were taught about World War II, and I don't remember all the ins and outs of history class, but like we learned the basics of it. We never really learned why it happened, though. You know, we never actually learned what the, we, we never learned the exact reasons why the Third Reich targeted Jewish people. We know that they targeted them. But I don't remember it ever actually going into what their justification was. And they probably wouldn't want to teach that anyway. They probably, in this climate, they probably wouldn't want to teach that for one reason or another. But I think about teachers. You know, I had a history teacher in high school, Mr. Noon. His name was Mr. Noon. He was a short little fat guy with a big gut and a, get a goatee. Tom Noon. Tom Noon. 
A real jerk. Like, I, I never had any bad interactions with him, but he was a real jerk. And he had been a Vietnam veteran. He was a diver. And every day he would invoke Vietnam. He never let you forget that he was a Vietnam veteran. And he talked about it incessantly. It was the whole of his identity. But he didn't see any combat. He was a diver. Like he was in the Navy and he was stationed on a, a ship of some kind off the coast of Vietnam or Cambodia or somewhere. And he did some kind of diving mission. But he never saw combat. And my joke about him was like, he dove for pop cans. Mr. Noon was in the Navy and he, he dove for pop cans. He dove down and fished out pop cans out of the water. That was my joke about him because you just couldn't take him seriously. But he was a history teacher and he knew a lot. You know, he, he was a history teacher. He knew history. It was a good fit for him in that sense where he, he was interested in the, um, the details of history. But I remember when he, we were talking about communism in his class. And he never actually explained to us, he never described what communism is, why it was able to take hold of Russia, why, why it was a popular idea. And he was very anti-communist. And he used to always say, he would say this all the time whenever the subject of communism came up, which was a lot given we were talking about you know, 20th century history, world history. Um, but he, when he would talk about communism, he would always say it was like uh, trying to force a square peg in a round hole. Communism just doesn't work. Just doesn't work. It was like trying to force a square peg in a round hole. He would say that every single time square peg. Like, and I think it got to the point where later in the year, if it would come up, remember communism, square peg, round hole, but he never explained why that was. And you know, what? I agree. That's the thing, is I agree with that. I'm no fan of communism, and I think the, the record of communism speaks for itself and doesn't need to, again, doesn't need to, we don't need to be taught that communism doesn't work. I think if we are told the realities of Soviet Russia, that's a convincing enough argument. I think we can draw our own conclusions. But what's so funny is he, he would always tell us it didn't work, square peg, round hole, but he would never actually say what the mechanics of that were. He never really said what communism was, what the philosophy was, what the ideas were. He just told us that it was bad. And that's basically what people do with national socialism as well. They don't actually talk about what the ideas were, why they became popular, what the politics of national socialism even were. And, I, you know, I think that they don't want to. Like when we're hearing people say, like, you can't, because what I saw in response to this Republican saying, like, you got to teach, teach it neutrally, be impartial. You know, the response to that is like, no, nobody should ever be impartial about Nazism and fascism. And it, it, it plays into a lot of things, actually, because there's this idea that if you are impartial about something, especially if it's something severe, that expressing it in objective terms with a degree of neutrality will always lend itself to the worst possible conclusion. That if, if you teach 
the history of Nazi Germany without editorializing it, that people will draw the worst possible conclusion and find it more attractive. And that's sort of the idea, like when people come down on political independence and third parties, there's a tendency to think, well, by being uh, in the middle or being in this gray area, you're actually enabling the enemy. But people who are on one extreme or the other, they always feel that way. And both of them tend to see people in the gray area that way. When there's really no evidence that that's true. And usually the extremes fuel each other. And when you demonize something that is neutral, you actually push it further the other way. Even if it's you simply moving further away, you make that thing, you, you make neutrality the friend of your enemy when you attack something for being impartial or neutral or simply not on your side. And so I don't see anything wrong with trying to teach history from a place of impartiality. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't think that it will enable the worst possible outcome. But the problem is it's not even about it's not even about the impact that that form of teaching something would have. It's really just about signaling that you yourself are opposed to it. It's really all about saying just so you know, I'm not a Nazi. Just so you know, I'm teaching you about this, but I, I want you to know I'm not a Nazi because it's bad. I'm just teaching you about the Third Reich. But I got to let you know that I don't agree with it. Square peg, round hole. Square peg, round hole. But you don't really teach people. Like, I mean, that's the thing is... That's, you know, the big mistake of our education system among many, but one of them is that we never really get into why things happen. And maybe that would require a degree of, maybe that, that delves into psychology, it delves into sociology. But you hear about all these horrible things happening and you're told that like, oh, norm, normal everyday people let this happen. The citizens of Germany let this happen. But it never actually gets into how and, and why that happens. And I think because it's difficult to measure, it's difficult to comprehend, and it's especially difficult to teach about that, especially when you're just glossing over it anyway. I mean, in Mr. Noon's class, I, we covered the French Revolution. We covered Robespierre. I was particularly interested in that. I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I do remember Robespierre because I did a, a presentation about him. And Mr. Noon, he was into that. When I told him that I was going to do a report on Robespierre, his eyes lit up and he goes, oh, Robespierre. I impressed him with that one. But yeah, unfortunately, you can't even say that, though. You can't even say, hey, we should teach these things with a degree of impartiality. Because someone will take that the worst possible way. They will assume you mean, we should teach that Nazis are good guys 
Hey, why don't we just, why don't we teach the kids that Nancy's are good guys? Someone will just assume that that's where you're coming from. And it just shows you objectivity is lost. Like the purpose of objectivity is lost. The purpose of it is lost if people just default to this assumption that attempting to be objective is to enable the enemy. You know, I was thinking about The Sopranos, too. Because, you know, everyone analyzes the characters in The Sopranos. I mean, The Sopranos is a very interesting show. There's a lot to think about when you watch it. But an aspect of it that I don't hear discussed is the way that you side with the main characters. Because the main characters are bad guys. They're members of the mafia. They kill people. Tony cheats on his wife. Even though Tony loves his family, he cheats on his wife all the time. Doesn't always treat them well. All the guys are like that. But you end up taking their side. Like, for example, like on The Sopranos, they get involved in these mafia wars with New York. And the new, you only really see one side of the New York guys. Even though they're actually the same exact thing as the New Jersey guys, like Tony Soprano. The New York guys, like, you just see, you only see them doing mafia stuff. And you only see them antagonizing Tony and his crew. And so as a result, you take Tony's side. Because you see all of Tony's life. Even Tony's friends. Even the guys who are part of Tony's crime family. You see them and their wives and their kids. You see them do horrible things. But you end up kind of feeling like you're part of their tribe. They have dynamic lives. And as a result, you see them as human. Whereas you see the New York guys as these villains because they seem to only exist to antagonize the guys who are in your tribe. Meanwhile, you actually see Tony and his guys do far worse things. And even though Tony's a villain too, he's a crime boss, you don't tend to really see it that way. You see Tony as this character you're invested in you see the ins and outs of his life. And so it's really this, when there is this mafia war between New Jersey and New York, it's villains against villains. But it ends up becoming villains against really bad villains. But you really have no basis for feeling that way. It's just kind of the way the show is framed. And that's so interesting to me, like how you, you end up, it kind of tells you about the tribal mindset. Because it's something I've noticed with tribal thinking, where... Someone who you think of as part of your tribe can do something really bad and you can acknowledge that it's bad and you can be mad at them for it, but you're forgiving too, especially when it comes to an issue with another tribe. So when Tony and his guys do terrible things, you're like, well, that was, that was really rough. That was really nasty. That was bad. But when it comes to some sort of conflict with the other tribe, New York, you're like, I sure hope that Tony and his guys come out of this on top. Oh my God, they killed, they shot so and New York killed so and so. Those freaking assholes. Oh my God. You, know, you end up having that reaction. But I was thinking about like some of the main characters in The Sopranos because, you know, one of the most popular characters is Silvio, who's Tony's best friend. And so I like Silvio, he's funny, he's a cool character. 
But there's a couple things he does that are just extraordinarily shitty. Like he runs a strip club and there's a storyline where one of the strippers is dating another mob guy and she stops coming to work. Like she ends up just hanging out at this mob guy's house and she stops coming to the strip club. So Silvio goes to that house and he drags her out of the house by force. I think he hits her. I think he calls her a cunt or a bitch or something. And he, he hits her or, or he drags her and throws her in the car. And it's, it's awful. I mean, it's a really awful scene. And the other mob guy who she was dating, whose house she was staying at, he's just watching from the window and laughing because he doesn't give a shit about her. He's just, he's just, he's enjoying the fact that she's being humiliated and assaulted. And then he goes on to kill her, but still, it's this scene where Silvio, you just see what a monster he is. But you don't give up on him. You're still like, oh, Silvio's a good guy. I like him. He's part of, he's part of the tribe. Even though you see him do this terrible thing to a young woman. And then there's another time, too, where he kills Christopher's girlfriend. It, it, Christopher's girlfriend, Adriana, comes out that she's an informant for the FBI. And so Silvio pretends that he's taking her somewhere. And he takes her to the middle of the woods and he kills her. And he calls her a cunt. It's really vicious. But the next season, there's a mob war and Silvio gets shot to death or he gets hospitalized. Like you never know what happens to him. He gets shot up in a mafia war with New York and you're really upset. You're like, oh no, oh my God, they, they shot Silvio. Those fucking assholes, those fucking ass-. You know, you take that approach to it, even though you shouldn't give a damn. You know, you should just be thinking, oh yeah, you know, I just saw in the last two seasons... I saw Silvio do terrible things to young women and call them names. He kills one of them. You know, he's not a good guy. Why do you give a shit that Silvio got shot up in a mafia war? But like you've accepted him as part of your tribe. So you overlook the fact that he's actually a nasty human being. And the show is filled with that. But, you know, that's real life too. Like I've seen it happen in Olympia here where... Some guy who's part of a friend group gets outed for doing something. He's an abuser. There was a guy who got accused of, you know, sex offenses. And people initially, you know, it's not that they forgave him. It's not that they accepted what he had done. They were kind of in denial at first. But the, the way they responded was much different than they would have responded if that guy was their enemy. And you see this politically, too. You see it with, um, you know, when some sort of controversy comes out about a Democrat. You know, it's not that everybody who's a Democrat, everybody who's a liberal supports the guy. But they overlook it. And they still see that person as part of their tribe. So they're not going to focus on it too much. They're not going to give much attention to it. Whereas when a Republican does something... You never hear the end of it and vice versa because it's that same sort of tribal thinking where like you can see somebody who's part of your tribe do something bad and acknowledge that it's bad and you don't support it and maybe you no longer have any, you know, you know maybe you no longer have any good feelings about that person, but you're still going to treat them as if they're a member of your tribe. And that's just something we do. I mean, it happens in families. It happens in friend groups. You tend to take someone's side. I mean, I see it take place in football. 
where if it comes out that a football player got drunk and beat his girlfriend, if he's not on your team, you have a tendency to be like, oh my God, they, they shouldn't even let him back in the league. They should kick him out of the league, dude. But if he's on your team, you have a tendency to be like, oh God, why did he, you're more mad that he screwed up. You're more like, oh God, why did he have to be so stupid? Oh, dude, he's not going to get to play in the game on Sunday. Why did he have to be so stupid? You you tend to react more that way. Like you're disappointed and you're upset that that person is no longer going to be on your team. But if it's somebody on another team, you're way more likely to be like, oh, just kill him. Just freaking kill him. And I think that's all the same form of thinking. And it comes naturally to us, but you have to be aware that you're of the fact that you're doing it. Because it's, diff- it's difficult to be impartial. And humans don't default to that way of thinking. Which is why that guy, uh, the Republican, saying, like, we should teach about Nazi Germany from a place of neutrality. I think the reason why you set up guidelines like that is because you won't be able to achieve neutrality. You will always have an opinion. You will always have a reaction. You will always have a response. But if you try to be objective... You're going to present the information better, for one. And I think you actually make a more convincing argument, too. If you let people draw their own conclusions, because speaking for myself, speaking for all of my close friends, my family members, none of us like when somebody else tries to draw the conclusion for us. Even if it's the same conclusion we will reach on our own anyway. When someone tries to tell you what to think, You rebel against it because you just resent the fact that they're doing that at all. And we live in a time where we're continually told what the conclusion is. We're told exactly what to think about everything. And we live in a time where that's just increased. I mean, you think about these fact checkers. You know, I think the last episode I did was about collective psychosis, an ongoing topic on here. But that topic was buzzing because of that doctor saying that there's a mass formation psychosis in response to coronavirus, which is funny because I saw all these people were like, you know what? There is, there is a mass formation psychosis. And it's like, did you just realize that now? You just realize that there's some form of collective psychosis taking place on every end of the spectrum. And I, I choose not to focus on the coronavirus side of that. Because, of course, there is some sort of collective psychosis going on, but it's not one-dimensional. It's not just the people who are fanatics about masks, fanatics about the vac. It's also the people who think, like, you know what? The vaccine is actually designed to kill us. Opposed to just thinking. Because, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't want the vac because they think, huh, you know, uh, they kind of rushed this thing. We don't really know the origins It seems like the people who might be responsible for this dang thing are the same people telling us what to do. I don't completely trust Big Pharma. I don't trust them at all. They have a history of putting profits over people. This VAC hasn't been properly tested. There's a lot of murky, questionable information out there about what coronavirus actually is and what its true origins are. 
But then there's another type of person who goes so deep into that that they're just like, the vac is designed to depopulate the earth. And it's actually going to control our brains. And that person, you know, they're actually close. It's like horseshoe theory where the way that person is thinking is actually closer to the person who's a fanatic for the vac, a vac fanatic. I mean, I heard about a story a week or two ago about there was some sort of Zoom meeting, an online meeting via Zoom. I don't know what it was for. I think it was either some sort of institution, maybe it was a school board. I can't remember what it was, but it was some sort of formal meeting that was taking place over Zoom. And one of the rules was that everybody had to wear a mask on video. These are all people in their own houses. None of these people are in the same room. They're having a Zoom meeting. They're having a Zoom meeting. They're having a Zoom meeting. And as a result, why would they need to wear masks? But it was outlined in the rules for this meeting that some people attending this meeting are uncomfortable at the sight of somebody not wearing a mask because they've, that's collective psychosis. And it doesn't just, even though that person is an extreme, what they're experiencing is part of a larger psychosis that other people are participating in too. And while not everybody is that extreme, not everybody is that, their minds aren't that destroyed, there are a lot of people who are closer to that than they are not. And I even heard that during this meeting, during the introductions, a couple people weren't wearing their masks when they introduced themselves, and then they went on to wear their masks for the remainder of the meeting. And the woman who organized the meeting sent out a scathing email where it was like, there were two people who didn't wear their masks for part of this. That's psychotic. And it's part of a collective psychosis in the same way that somebody who's on the opposite end, which is actually closer to that, if we follow that horseshoe theory idea, but they're actually closer to that sort of person who's like, anybody who wears a mask is enabling the government's oppression of the people, and the VAC is designed to kill you. Those people are actually closer than they are not, in my opinion. Because that bothers me, too. I mean, there's people who I I pay attention to who say things like, if you're still wearing a mask to the store, you're gone. You're gone. You're just one of them. And it's like, I'm not invested in masks, but all the stores here have a requirement. And, you know, it's the path of least resistance. There are other issues. There are other hills that I will die on. But I, I decided fairly early that coronavirus protocols, I'll do the bare minimum. I'm not looking to get in a confrontation with a store employee. I'm just not looking to deal with that. There are times where I will push back, but that's one where I just decided not to really care. I live in an area where people are obsessed with masks. You know, it's just, it would cause me more grief to push back on that one issue. But there are people out there who are like, if you're still wearing a mask, you're part of the problem. And that bothers me just as much as the people who are like, We're going to have a Zoom meeting and everybody needs to wear a mask. Everybody needs to wear, you know, it bothers me just as much. But, you know, with this idea, you know, of collective psychosis, what I was going to get at is, you know, a lot of people, I guess, didn't even think about that. 
And because this doctor got a lot of publicity recently for saying we are experiencing a mass formation psychosis, they're like, oh, yeah. Which I think it's good to remember that. I mean, I think when you acknowledge that there is a collective psychosis taking place, it actually makes you more forgiving of the individual people who are caught up in it. I think it makes you demonize them less because you're like, oh, something is happening to a lot of people. And this person is just one part of that. I might not want to be around them. I might be concerned about them, concerned about interacting with them. But it makes you more forgiving because you realize they just got, they've been caught up in this. They've been swept up. But what's funny about that is the other day I was just, I checked the internet and I just see this headline that says, fact checkers say there's no evidence of a mass formation psychosis. And the fact checker thing, you know, it, it's a low hanging, it's, it's a low hanging ball sack. It's low hanging fruit. It's a low hanging ball sack. It's a little too easy to kick that. But I'll never get over it. This age of fact checkers, because you see it all the time. Fact checkers say AP press says their fact checkers have determined there is no sign of mass formation psychosis. And it is pseudoscience. It is pseudoscience. It's pseudoscience. And that's too funny. You know, because it's like the people who are caught up in the mass psychosis are telling you there's no mass psychosis. Well, of course they are. But they do it with everything. And the funniest one of all is when they say, it's one thing if, if they say fact checkers have determined that this is incorrect. But the one that you see that's actually more nefarious is Fact checkers say the Bill Gates quote that is making its rounds is misleading. Because when they acknowledge that something is misleading, they're admitting that the person actually said it. They're admitting that it's basically true. But they're trying to add this other context where they're like, it's true that this person said this, but that's not actually what it means. And maybe sometimes that's right. Maybe sometimes something is misleading or it's been taken out of context. That happens all the time. But many times, you know, we're talking about something that was said explicitly, but the fact checkers say it's misleading. But they use the term misleading because that way they're acknowledging that it's true. But by saying it's misleading, they can add their spin. But, I mean, is there anybody out there who reads that headline about fact checkers say and doesn't feel some sort of creeping dread? You know, is there anybody who reads that and doesn't feel that there's something robotic and nefarious about it? Because it does read like some sort of state-sponsored... You know, it it comes across like state-sponsored media. Fact-checkers say... And it, it, it's like fact checkers, essential workers, all these phrases that come out, all these roles that people have. I haven't heard the essential workers one quite as much. That was one that bothered me, though. Oh, my my husband, he, he's an essential worker. You know who were essential workers, too? Weed shop, bud tenders. Bud tenders were essential workers here. Which I pointed this out back... at the start of lockdowns in 2020, but I'll never get over that where, 
you know, 10 years ago, people were selling marijuana illegally here and you could go to jail for it. I don't remember the exact year they legalized it, but it was about 10 years ago. And it's like 10, 15 years ago, you could go to jail for illegally selling marijuana. And it just shows you how quickly things change where all of a sudden bud tenders are essential workers. Like they closed down all sorts of stores, but they did not close down the weed shops. He's an essential worker. But you can see where this kind of class thing has been built in. There's different classes of people. You know, in the same way that there's the vact and the unvact, the essential worker and the non-essential worker. The last couple of years have created all these different classes of people that didn't exist before. Like, yeah, you could always say, yeah, some people have jobs that are more important. They're more, they're, they're a big, they play a much more impor uh, important role in our communal infrastructure. Doctors, nurses, firefighters. But all of a sudden we have essential workers, people who are allowed to work during pandemonium. And I, I remember talking to somebody I know who's a good person. It's not like this is a bad person, but I remember talking to them during lockdown and they were, they were talking about how somebody in their life was an essential worker. And they said it with almost this, uh, this degree of pride where they were proud that their loved one was an essential worker, a veteran of the, of the pandemonium pandemic. And good for them. I'm glad they... I'm glad that they felt good about it or they felt some kind of pride, but it was funny to me because it's brand new. It's this brand new idea and people are just like, yeah, you know, that sounds good. It feels, it makes me feel important to say that I know an essential worker. I know a fact checker. My husband is a fact checker. <laughs> Oh, you know, he, he's one of these fact checkers. Oh, he's one of these, well, he's what they call a fact checker. A fact checker. Meanwhile, I hear that and I just immediately dismiss it. Somebody who goes to Wikipedia. Somebody who goes to Wikipedia is a fact checker. But, you know, with the way that the internet is censored, with the way that information is just controlled even more and more the centralization of information it means fact checkers can just come up with facts as they see fit we have that's the thing about living in the information age is that we have so much information that you can really just pick and choose you can find something that will support your view and that's fine on its own but we can see when everything's centralized how damaging that can be I think I'm going to close this one out. I don't have much more to say. I talked to Michael DeLeonardo yesterday, the mafia guy, because I was working on an article for my Substack. Took a few months off from that. Took a few months off from anything mafia related. I get very obsessive about that kind of stuff and have to kind of cleanse myself. And as a, you know, if you're researching, like speaking of fact checking, if you're passionate about some kind of research, especially something that requires a lot of digging a lot of making obscure connections between things. 
there's nothing better for research aside, you know, outside of the actual research itself. There's nothing better than taking a break and just letting your head clean itself. Cause then you revisit information and you look at it objectively because you learn about, you know, as a, as a researcher on that subject, you have to be objective because it's very easy to find information about the mafia. And when you don't have an explicit statement explaining things to you, because after all, this is a secret society. And if you're researching the early years of it, where there's very little documentation, you really have to try to make connections entirely on your own. But sometimes you try to make connections. It's not that you're trying to spin a narrative, but you just, you want something to be connected you want a certain story to emerge. And so you have to step away from it. You have to step away from it and remember that, you know what, this doesn't necessarily fit my assumptions. But I've been working, I actually wrote most of the article months ago, but I was revisiting this article I want to put up, and it involves some information I got from Michael DiLeonardo. And I ran it by him. I showed him a rough draft. I don't know if he read the whole thing. But, you know, he was happy with it. He gave me his blessing, which I'm happy about. And that's an interesting thing, too, like being objective about people. Because it's not just being objective about history, trying to approach larger subjects with a degree of neutrality. It's also people. And, you know, becoming, you know, dare I say friends to some degree with Michael you know, he was involved in, you know, he never shot anybody. He never pulled the trigger, but he was a participant in multiple murder conspiracies, at least two of which were carried out. You know, he drove a car, he, he drove a crash car, as they call it, in a murder. Because mafia murders, there's always at least one or two guys who park a car about a block away from the murder. And they're there to kind of keep an eye out. And they're also there in case a cop drives by or a cop pulls up or just somebody gets in the way. They're there to crash their car into that person or to block them. Sometimes they'll just pull. Like if if the shooters, for example, are leaving a murder scene, the guy in the crash car might just pull into the middle of an intersection and block it. Or if somebody tries to interfere, he'll drive his car into that car. Things like that. So he did that. I think he did that in another murder And then he was involved in another murder conspiracy that never actually happened. But this is a guy, too, where, like, his brother was murdered. His brother, Robert, was associated with another crime family. And they killed him. And there was nothing he could do about it. He was told, if you want it, because this is before he himself was a mafia member. He was just an aspiring mafia member, an associate. And his mentors told him, you know, if you want to be a part of the mafia, if you want to be a part of the Gambino family... You can't do anything about this. Your brother was involved with other people and they killed him. There's nothing you can do. You'll either get killed and we won't back you. Like we won't support you because that's not how it works. They had their own reason for killing him and it has nothing to do with us. So if you want to continue on in this life that we live, you have to just deal with it. And his mentors, the guys who told him that, both of their fathers had been murdered. One of them was a guy... Jerry D'Aquila, who his father was one of the earliest New York bosses, and he was murdered in 1928. And Jerry was there. He saw his father get killed. And, you know, 20 years later, he joined the mafia. 
didn't stop him from joining because he, he's from a mafia lineage. And then Michael's other mentor was that guy's cousin, and that guy's father was killed. So these two guys whose fathers were murdered told Michael after his brother was killed, you just deal with it. Your brother's dead. You know, there's nothing you can do. If you want to join the mafia, you have to just move on. And, you know, you, talking to a guy like this, you know, I talked to him mainly through messages and email. I haven't talked to him on the phone in, since last year. But when I talked to him on the phone, you know, charismatic guy. He's not getting anything from me. And aside from information, I mean, I, I'll tell him things that I find in research, but it's he's not working on a book. He's not uh, using it for anything. He just enjoys telling his life story. He enjoys talking to researchers because he's a very sharp guy. He's very interested in learning more about some of the early history since his, his grandfather was an early mafia member. His great-grandfather was a member in Sicily who came to the U.S., in the late 1800s and joined the mafia here. So he just, he's interested in the history, but you know, talking to a guy like that, I don't sit there and think like, I am talking to a guy who is part of murder conspiracies. Cause like, I can tell you, I don't know anybody who killed anybody. Like living my life in Washington state, I've never known anybody to my knowledge who's killed somebody. And if they have, it was maybe a Vietnam veteran. Certainly not Mr. Noon. Mr. Noon dove for pop cans in the waters, in the still waters off the shore of Southeast Asia, Mr. Noon didn't kill anybody. I'm sure that I've met people who have committed a, a killing. You never know who has. You never know who's, who was in a war. I mean, I worked with a guy who drove a tank in the Iraq war. I have suspicions. You know, I have suspicions that maybe that tank was used in combat. He never said it. But reading between the lines, I wouldn't be surprised. So I very well might know somebody who's a, a veteran of the military who was involved in killing somebody in, in a conflict. But in terms of, you know, somebody who's just committed a murder, I don't, I've never known anybody to my knowledge. So it was weird talking to Michael on the phone last year because I didn't, I, I never even thought about it. When I was talking to him, it's like I knew who he was, but I never sat, you know, at no time while talking to him did I think, this is a guy who was at murder scenes. This is a guy, this guy helped commit murders. I just kind of thought I'm talking to a guy. He's not going to kill me. You know, he became a government witness, so he you know, only served a little bit of prison time. He's not killing anybody now. He's an older guy. I think he's like close to 70 years old. I think he's in his mid to late 60s. He's retired. You know, he turned government witness, so he's far removed from the actual mafia. They want nothing to do with him. But I approach a guy like that with a degree of neutrality. Like, I have something to learn from him about a subject that I care about. And he's interested in the history of that subject as well. And there's very few people who can actually talk about that to begin with, let alone somebody who lived it. And I never thought I would have a rapport with somebody from that background. I never thought I would be in touch with somebody like that, but I try to be impartial. And I guess I don't even try to be, I just am. I'm just like, you know, I, I could judge this guy. He cheated on his wife. He had a kid out of wedlock with his mistress, which a lot of those guys do. 
if you Google his name, if you Google Michael DeLeonardo, I mean, he's famous. He's one of the most well-known mafia members from his era. One of the most well-known rats, government witnesses. You know, it's not like I condone what he did. His wife has done interviews. She wasn't on Mob Wives, I don't think, but she's done some things like that. Like she did one of those shows. His ex-wife did a show where she was interviewed about him and how basically how bad he treated her. Like he wasn't abusive, but yeah, he cheated on her and he had a, a mistress and he had a kid with his mistress. And she found out because one of Michael's associates wrote a congratulations card and sent it to her because he, he heard that Michael had had a kid. And so he sent his wife a card saying, Hey, congratulations. I heard about your kid. She didn't have a kid. Like she didn't, she hadn't had a new baby. And so that's how she found out that Michael had had a new kid with his mistress. So yeah, that's not good. <laughs> you know, it's not good stuff, but it's like, that has nothing to do with my interaction with him. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's good, but I don't need to moralize about it. When I'm interacting with him, I don't need to stop myself and think like, this guy didn't treat his wife very well. This guy was part of the mafia and he drove a crash car in two murders. You know, I don't sit there and think that because I don't need to. I'm aware of it. And, you know, writing this article, I used some information from him. And at no point in the article do I need to moralize either. I'm simply interested in facts. And when the subject of murder comes up, I, I don't really talk about, I don't talk about his involvement in murder but I talk about some people he knew. I don't need to say anything about that. I don't need to add color. It's already colorful enough. The facts are often colorful enough. And it plays into an important point, though, too, which is no matter who somebody is, you, you never know what you can learn from them. And interestingly enough, you know, what I've learned from this guy is he treats people well. He was a popular figure in the mafia. You know, he was well-liked when he was on the street. He rose through the ranks very quickly at a young age. And talking to him, I can see why, honestly. I like him. I genuinely like the guy. And so it shows you the, the dynamics of humanity where it's not all about just, oh, hey, this guy did this, or these people did this. When you, make an, when you use that guideline, when you use like a guideline of neutrality and you make an effort to live an impartial life, you benefit. You learn things. You learn more. And this guy who was talking about Nazi Germany and you know, presenting the information in a way that's at least somewhat impartial, I think we have more to learn from that than we would otherwise. Because I can tell you that, you know, I'm not too engaged in a lot these days. Like culturally, I don't watch TV. I don't watch movies. Even music, which has been one of my biggest passions, just doesn't interest me that much anymore. Not in the way that it used to. Not that I don't like music, not that I don't like music, but just that deep interest in music, like the way that it used to, the search, 
the hunt for jewels, the endless pursuit of jewels. I'm just not engaged with it like I used to be. And as a result, you know, it would be very easy for me to get bored. I, it'd be very easy for me to be bored all the time as a result. Like, what do you even do? Like my mom, she used to say to me, she's like, you don't watch TV. Like, well, what do you do? I mean, she was just kind of kidding. My mom knew that I had all sorts of interests. But to her, it's like she didn't understand that, like, for entertainment, you know, you just watch TV. But I think the reason why I'm not bored, and to be honest, I've been a little more bored lately. I think that's just sort of this pseudo-depression. But, uh, you know, the reason I'm not bored is because I just try to approach life as something that I can continually learn from. Not learning life lessons. Not that I'm looking for the moral in every story. I don't mean it in that way. But just learning about what all this is. That's the reason I'm not bored. Is because just learning about what everything is. Learning about how much of life is being caught up in this emotional response to everything. How much time that we all spend spinning things. Even when we're not trying to. Because that's the thing. That's why it's good to try to be neutral. That's why it's good to try to take that Buddhist middle path. Because you will lean one way or the other anyway. But if you do less of that, you'll be able to see things more as what they actually are. And I believe that you always have more to learn when you approach life that way. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see